Welcome back to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. My guest this week is writer Sean Hotchkiss. Sean and I spoke about how his journey into the world of menswear journalism and his love of clothes helped him get to the end of himself. We also talked about his recent GQ article on surrendering his wardrobe and how with less stuff, he's happier than ever. Let's get to it. All right. All right. Sean Hotchkiss, you are on Blamo. I'm so glad you came on. I am very happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. No problem. How the hell are you doing? I'm great. Thank yeah. you for asking. I'm I'm excited that you're here in my apartment. Yeah, thank you for letting me in this uh this very gorgeous mid-century modern type <laughs> zen zen den. Yeah, zen den, <laughs> for sure. You got we got the uh Palo Santo or we we're like smudging out the bad vibes. It's it's, it's killer. It's necessary. <laughs> yeah. Um so I kind of want to talk to you for a number of reasons. One, you are kind of like the de facto menswear writer, like the the man on the scene, the man in the, in the world, and like viewing everything without any sort of additional lens of the publication that they have to represent. Um, and so I think that you know, like m- maybe the best way to put it is, I just think you're one of the most like honest, like menswear journalists and journalists that i know that you know you've always been a writer you've always you know been this kind of like man of integrity and uh thanks yeah and so i'm i'm very glad that you're on and uh one of the stuff i want to talk to you about is like how the heck you even got here (laughs) to to new york in general because like you've been here i think as long as i have right i've been here since january of 2007 okay so almost yeah yeah so what did you go to school here? Like, what's your what's your deal? I arrived here probably as a result of being in upstate New York at school. I went to a small liberal arts college called Hobart and William Smith. All right. And there were a lot of kids at my school from the tri-state area, and I got introduced to New York City while I was at college. I had no context of New York City before I got to college. Right. And so you just kind of like came, was this like the place that you just come and hang out or? Yeah, I started coming here to visit friends and then a girl who I ended up moving here with. Oh. Um, but it was a little bit of a around the way story, a roundabout story, I guess, um, because there was a lot happening in my life at the time too. Um, the reason I really ended up in New York is because my senior year of college, my, my dad passed away. Um, and I essentially moved in with this girlfriend and her family lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. Oh, where, where were you from originally? I'm from Maine. Oh, from Maine. So you're like a true New England, like East coast, you know, lobster eating guy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what, and what did you study at school? I studied English. Nice. Um, I my major was creative writing. Okay, so you're one of those guys who's actually had their major turn into their career. Yeah, and I didn't think when I was in school that that's what I was going to be doing. I always thought of writing as more like a hobby, although it always um, felt natural to me in school, and right. I really enjoyed it. It was the only thing I enjoyed in school. Right. Um. You you were kind of like a rebellious guy or something. 
No, I I just I think I struggled with I struggled with the academic setting in general. I I I had trouble focusing in class. Yeah. Um and why I was drawn to writing classes is you know they would be workshops and they would be interactive. Yeah. And I felt like we were getting real-time feedback and 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 making connections with people in in the class as opposed to just listening to someone lecture to you. I don't learn that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the same with me too and especially in terms of writing because you know in writing you have so much freedom to express whatever and there's not really a path like say with math all of us have to get to the same answer mm-hmm. right and we basically all have to go the exact same path to mm-hmm. get to that answer and at least with writing you just figure it out right you know and it's i don't know and i think at least in some ways you kind of start to figure out like more of who you are like you know if you coming from maine like what was it what were some of the stuff that you were doing like out there as far as as far as just like hobbies like what are the things that shaped you were you like a skateboard kid a music kid i was definitely always into music um through my parents right um but i mean i was i tried on a lot of different hats as a kid um what i landed on was really kind of like individual sports i was really into i was a ski racer for most of my young life what, and, what do you mean? I was an alpine downhill racer. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is awesome. Hold on. <laughs> downhill skiing. Yeah. How how did you get into that? I got into skiing when my dad got remarried to okay. my stepmother. Okay. And they were both skiers and they put me and my stepbrother Alex into the race program at age 7. Oh, snap. I mean, were you into it at that time? Were you just like... Cause I, I was that- not into skiing at first because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've been in a ski lesson as a young kid, but they put a balloon on your head and push you around. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I did a ski class once and, um, you know, like you had to, the whole V, put together the V to Right, the to pizza stop. wedge. Yeah I, yeah. I kind of can't do it. <laughs> I can't. it's pretty hard i don't want to go down a hill either <laughs> in the cold snow and I'm, i don't know so you're you were an alpine skier in maine and how long yes. were you doing this um i did that from the time i was i i think they so we we were in regular lessons for a while and then we eventually both decided that we wanted to to race you, you could either go so you took ski lessons and you became a skier and then you went one of two ways you became a freestyle skier okay. or you became a racer Right. And freestyle is, you know, you ski down the bumps and like, you know, do some tricks off jumps. And Alex and I wanted to go really fast. Yeah. Um, so we got put in the race program and, and then when we got to middle school age, they started to have a ski team in school. So we both were on the ski team. So we were doing like this sort of twofold skiing thing. We were not only skiing every single weekend or every other weekend with our parents. We were then skiing three nights a week for school as well. So we skied a lot. Jeez. Is, do you all go to the same place or was it like a tour type thing? The actual competitions took place at different mountains all over the state. Right. Um, but all our competitive events for high school and middle school were all at one mountain called Shawnee Peak, which is about one hour north of where I grew up, Falmouth. Okay. And so, like, what what made you want to stop skiing? Were you just like, 
I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, I mean, you I did still... this for 10 years or, or are you still, I mean, like in terms of like competitively, was it like, I'm going to be an Olympian? Oh yeah. I mean, it got to the point. I mean, you, you ski, I skied competitive all through high school, but then of course there's another sort of point at, that you reach that you're like, well, am I just going to be a high school skier? Am I going to be, as you said, you know, something more. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't good enough to be something more, but I, I mean, we were good. My, my, my high school ski team won the state championship several times in our nice. class. Nice. Um, and I think my senior year, which was my best year, I think I got 10th in the slalom in the state, which is where you like run over the gates. It's like the short turns. Oh yeah. And then I got, I think I fell in the GS, but in one run I got fourth, which was my highest finish ever my senior year. Right. And so, oh man, that's, that just sounds kind of intense. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess it's always hard for me too to relate to some of this stuff too. Cause like I've, I've never scored a point in anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm not trying to try to get pity or anything here but just like yeah i I think i've always had this desire to want to compete in terms of that yeah um so you go through that and then you go to uh you go to college college goes pretty good were you i mean were you like a very avid student were you a partier what was this i was a partier in college yeah um i started drinking heavily halfway through high school oh wow and the friends that i made towards the latter half of high school who i am still good friends with and several of them live in new york um we drank on the weekends and would spend all week trying to figure out how to get beer and that kind of thing so that that came into my life at pretty young yeah like super bad style exactly okay <laughs> fake ids fake ids the whole thing we had the one store that we'd go to yep. where the guy you know let it pass and yep. I, I don't think he was all there and, sure. uh, and he was you know fine to, to sell us large quantities of beer <laughs> oh this looks cool yes yeah, uh, just arizona tea right different label all right exactly yeah so you come to new york Kind of, I mean, at least from what you said earlier, almost on accident, right? Because it's not like you in, you intended to come here. It was more of just coming to be with this woman. Or was that always in the goals of like, I'm going to be this writer and I'm going to come to New York and I'm going to Jack Kerouac my way all around? I didn't, when I graduated from college, as I said before, I had no idea that I was going to write. I, uh, my dad dying had a strange effect on me in the sense that, of course, it had a strange effect on me, but I, it made me kind of re-examine my priorities. And um, I really just thought that I wanted to move to New York and be a businessman because that's what my girlfriend's father did. He was a CEO of a big company. Right. And I thought that that's what you had to do to be successful. Is is to basically just be the business guy. Like- I thought that I had to be a high-powered business guy. And I didn't just think I had to be it. I was interested in being it. I saw him and I looked up to him and he became a sort of a surrogate father for me. And I was very intrigued by his world. Right. And so how long were you with this, this woman before? Five years. So five years. So in total. Gotcha. And then your dad passed away. And can I ask what he passed away from? He killed himself when I was a senior in college. Wow. So I imagine just like the, I mean, I actually, I can't even imagine. Uh, that's, 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 that's horrible. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, in terms of, in terms of like being with this woman and stuff, do you kind of go and you, is this like an escape? And 
you you know you, you come here and you're basically going to be this business guy but you go to school for creative writing right it's i mean i think i i had the same issue at least when i came to new york in terms of i know so many people who come here to escape mm-hmm. and maybe it's they're escaping an amazing thing an amazing opportunity of or maybe they're escaping like you know i mean i was in high school hated high school got called a faggot mm-hmm. you know i wore a, a a tie and a jacket and i remember i had a hoodie in between because i was trying to be like the long, the long island like punk rock kids and brand new and i just had this like no one understands me and it was all about coming to new york to find this other identity um i mean do you think that that was like something unconsciously you were looking for i mean i don't want to project here i'm just sure i think that i came out of college and again, ending on the note that college ended on for me with my dad. Right. I think I I came out of college being very confused as to who the hell I was. Yeah. Um, I grew up just to like take a little step back quickly. Yeah. I grew up with two dare, very very different um, family lives between my mom and my dad. My my mom um, grew up, you know, scraping together money to make rent and my dad had remarried my stepmother who came from a lot of money and those lifestyles couldn't have been more different you know with my dad and my stepmother i'm going skiing every weekend right and you know as i said my mom is trying to figure out her own life so um what did your dad do my dad was a freelance human resources consultant okay and then he was a boat guy in terms of he was like a marine consultant and a boat brokerage guy okay he was a he did a lot of he did a lot he had his hand in a lot of renaissance man yeah he yeah. he 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 liked uh he liked the freedom he was not a he was not a, never an office guy he right. liked to be have his own schedule right so wow so you're in new york yeah again so I, I I really came out of college. I I kind of I think I latched on to um, my girlfriend's family because I saw them as being something that was successful and stable mm-hmm. and something that I really felt that I needed at the time. Um, right. You know, it was kind of it was kind of a survival thing when my dad passed away because. I had drifted apart from my mom. I know this is all kind of confusing, but I had drifted apart from my mom. Yeah. Um, so I really, the the reason why I moved in with her family is, is because I, I kind of had nowhere else to go. Right. And so you're in New York, you're searching for this structure. Um, what, what was like your first job here? What were you trying to, I mean, my first job here was a job that, uh, this girlfriend's father, picked up the phone and you know called one of his ceo buddies and just got me a job at a commercial real estate firm yeah wearing a suit to work yeah what what were your thoughts on that were you into it i hated it (laughs) i mean i hated it from second one but yeah um but that was how i got into clothes right because i mean you had you had to wear a suit exactly and i what year is this this is oh nine. I start. I start there in oh seven. Okay, and yes, I had you know I had this very big moment um, where 
you know, I sort of get indoctrinated into this world of, right. you know, the high powered CEO. And, and, you know, I, I had this, you know, I think it was the day after Thanksgiving of the year after my father died. Um, her dad drives me into Manhattan and we go to Paul Stewart and he buys me like a proper outfit. Oh, wow. And, you know, walking into that store, I don't know if you've been in there. I assume you have. Yeah, I've been to Paul Stewart. Yeah. It hasn't changed in like 50 years. No, no. <laughs> but but the power of that store on a kid coming from Maine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, yeah, it was, it, it was just, you know, he, I looked up to this guy. And he is now sort of my father figure in the wake of my dad's passing. Yeah. And he brings me to the store and he buys me this amazing like cashmere jacket, you know, nice. for, for, <laughs> for God knows how much it costs. Right. Right. And, uh, and I just felt like I had been, you know, inducted into this world. Yeah. You're so, the so then I'm hooked, you know, then I, yeah. then I, then I, I, I'm, I'm searching for, you know, I, I have this whole new idea of maybe what I want in life. Maybe I just want to be fabulously wealthy at yeah. this point. You know, I don't know. And yeah, so I take this job in commercial real estate. I'm wearing a suit to work every day. And then I have a problem because I'm going to Paul Stewart on my own <laughs> and I'm spending all my fucking money buying suits. Right. So, because you're making a little cash doing real estate, I was making a little cash. But in fairness, my dad had passed away and left me money. Okay, and I was going into Paul Stewart and I was blowing it like it was going out of style. Right. So, <laughs> man, that's that's fascinating. So, I mean, because especially too, like Paul Stewart. I mean, Paul Stewart is. I mean, you and I know this, but like from other people who may not be as familiar. I mean, it is like the the classic you know, similar to Brooks Brothers, but I would say maybe a little bit more luxurious than Brooks Brothers. Definitely. Much more higher end, you know, a little bit more English too. Um, and so, I mean, you're going and you're getting this kind of, this protection, this identity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I don't remember. I was having a conversation with someone about it. It might've been my editor, GQ Nick, but he called it like the perfect suit of armor. Yeah. I mean, I think... You, especially like, you know, myself too. I mean, I had the same thing of like, I, I come to New York and I don't really know who I am. I just know that I can be accepted here. I can write my own story here. And my number one thing, and I've said this on other podcasts was to get Dior jeans. <laughs> you know, one of them I'm wearing right now, but it was like, this was my thing that I had to have these because I had to be accepted. And this, you know, if I can put myself in this, then I'm okay. Then it's like, cool, man, you can call me whatever, but I'm wearing like Dior jeans. So like, you know, screw you. And, you know, I mean, especially going to a place like Paul Smith, I mean, you can get that and you can be a freaking G. So. Totally. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is I'm, I'm walking down the street in this, you know, these $3,000 suits that I've now bought and these like handmade English shoes. Yeah, yeah. And I feel ridiculous. Because I, 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 there's no, I, I mean, it's, I feel that everyone on the street can see that I have no fucking business being in this outfit. Uh, I don't know about that. Maybe you think that. That's how I felt. Yeah. I'm just telling you how I felt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like a total fraud. Yeah. You know, because I'm like, here I am. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I guess I didn't have the I I didn't have the, the fortitude for that, but it's like and and I was doing that, but I'm just telling you how I felt inside. Sure, sure. So when do you leave commercial real estate? Because so, I I always knew you as the GQ writer, right? Um. So what 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 happened next? Commercial real estate I did um until the spring or summer of 2009. Right. Um. I had <laughs> I had an eject button moment out of this life that I've been describing in, in that at that time. Right. I uh I hit a wall with everything. I hit a wall with um with partying and how I was abusing substances. Right. I hit a wall with um my relationship which I had stayed in longer than I would have if again if it hadn't been an issue of kind of survival yep been there and i uh yeah i i got out of it all within a week really because i i decided that i was gonna oh and and uh and my my girlfriend and and her family as well were were kind of saying hey man i think you need to go to rehab um because of a few episodes i had had and in all fairness they were absolutely right right um and so I quit my job in one week. I signed up to go to a rehab and I broke up with this young woman. Right. Um, so that was in August of 2009. And I had this kind of total reset moment. I came back 30 days later and I was like, holy shit. Right. I'm kind of starting from a clean slate here. Yeah. I um, mean, were you like making amends at that time or I was making amends I, when I came back I was very raw I mean I had never dealt with any of my shit yeah I had never dealt with my dad's death I had never dealt with anything that I was holding on to from my childhood and when I went to that rehab and I was sober for 30 days and I was talking about it with people I mean I came back and I was so raw all I wanted to do was get back in that relationship because it was fucking scary to be on my own. Yeah. Um, she let me stay in our apartment for a, maybe a month. I was fortunate enough that three friends from school who are a couple years younger than me were all moving into a place together and they said, we need a fourth. And I jumped in with them. Right. But um, now I'm this, I'm sober. <laughs> I come back to New York. I'm out of this relationship that basically defined me. Yeah. And I'm living with three kids who are two and three years younger than me who are getting super fucked up all the time. Oh, God. And I'm going to AA meetings at 730 in the morning on the Upper East Side in a church basement. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. I'm no, just, I know. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so It's amazing what we live through. You know, yeah. like these fucking weird situations. I mean, New York. I don't, yeah. I don't know. So when does when does GQ come in? So now you're okay. sober. You got your life together. You're, or, or it appears to be. I mean, you're you're looking for structure. Yeah, looking for structure. Well, God bless you, man. <laughs> um. So I uh I did a few things before I got to GQ, and actually one of them is why I ended up at GQ. So I got an internship at Ralph Lauren. Oh right. I I went. If you uh, we haven't talked about this at all, but I had a golf blog. I remember this. Called the Khaki Crusader. Yeah. Because this was on Tumblr. No, it was no. on Blogspot. Okay. But you had it. You 
trying to think because I had met you when you were like when everyone was connecting their shit to yeah. Tumblr. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and this was something I had started in commercial real estate. I my friend Jess from growing up in Falmouth mm-hmm. had suggested to me that maybe I should start a blog because this was when blogs were this was their heyday, right? Yeah. Um and I knew we didn't talk about golf, but I also grew up playing golf. That's why I said individual sports were kind of my thing. Yeah, yeah. I was a good golfer in in high school and college. And um and I knew I liked clothes, so I put them together and I started this golf clothing blog. Okay. And it kind of became a little thing in the industry. So anyway, so I'm kind of going to gloss over most of that, but No, it's fine, yeah. But um you, you Ralph, Lauren, Ralph Lauren Ralph Lauren invited me because of my golf blog to come see the spring 2010 collection or whatever. Yeah. So I go to, you know, 650 Madison or whatever and you know, I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm like I can't believe these people are having me. Here. Yeah. Um and I go into the showroom and I end up meeting this guy Charlie who's the head of the concept design team. And um we walk around the block and we smoke a cigarette and he invites me to have an internship with him nice so i'm like this is great so i go to ralph lauren and i work on the concept design team with these guys which is like concept design real quick to to just sidebar here that's like the ultimate grail job it's amazing yeah you're buying vintage clothes you're putting together mood boards yeah in the years before tumblr yeah you're making real mood boards with swatches and, and photo. You know, I'm like pulling up old photos of James Dean playing chess and putting them on a board, you know, so that Ralph can come in and be like, nice job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, the fact that I the fact that I was like bumming around with no job one week, like in like going to AA meetings and being sober and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then two weeks later, I'm in a meeting with Ralph Lauren. That was pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Um, so it was great. I did that for a few months and then they, they kind of alluded to maybe that they would hire me, but I was, it it didn't really work out for one reason or another. And, and I also was kind of missing writing. I wasn't, you know, the blogging was also a way to kind of get me back into writing. I, I, when I, I was, you know, writing all these posts for my, for my blog spot. Yeah. And it was, it was like, you know, like you said, when we were talking earlier before we started, but you know, I needed to exercise that writing muscle again, and that did it for me. Yeah. Um, so I leave Ralph, and the next year is a very, very tough year for me. Um, I was going back. I invested a little money and had a proper website built for my blog for the Khaki Crusader, and I took on a woman who used to write for Golf Digest, um, Anne-Marie, who was doing some of the women's coverage for took me. Took on as you mean hired? Yeah, I mean, we we just decided to partner up on my site, okay. um, and we got invited to do some fun stuff. We like got asked to go to the PGA Merson merchandise show and like you know be on a panel for you know. So it was like it was legit, yeah. and we were making a little bit money from ads and stuff like that. Um, and then finally in 2011, how I how I got the job at GQ was Lance Lynn who was a fashion editor at GQ, yep. had just become a fashion editor. He used to be head of men's PR at Ralph Lauren when I interned there. Okay. And he was the one who originally invited me there to see that golf collection because he knew about my blog and he read it and he thought it was cool and he invited me. And so he had been like, he had been a fan of, you know, whatever I was doing. Um, and so he got to GQ and I sent him a note 
and I said, Hey, I would love to, you know, come in and maybe talk to people about a position or whatever. And he was like, it's my first day. <laughs> he's like, it's going to take me a little while to get situated. Easy he's tiger. Like, he's <laughs> like, but I promise I will work on this for you. Right. And he did. And it came faster than I thought. He, you know, three weeks later or so, he was like, I got you an interview with the editor of GQ.com, Sean Fantasy. Yeah. And I went in and I met Sean. And GQ.com was pretty fast and loose in those days. Yeah. This is when it was on like movable type, right? It was super archaic. The yeah. back end was exactly movable type. And, uh, and, you know, I sat with Sean and Sean was basically like, dude, I need like a workhorse. He's like, I need someone who's going to come in and just do a ton of content for me. Right. You know, eight to 10 posts a day on this blog, the GQI. And I was like, I can do it. And I sent him a samples of his, of my writing and, and he was into it. And he was probably like, this dude's like talking about golf clothes. I mean, <laughs> great. But <laughs> he obviously saw something yeah. in me. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then I started GQ and I, and when I started, I was working out of my apartment on the Upper East Side and, uh, eventually they finagled me a desk cause I was a freelancer. I was full-time freelance. Yeah. Um, I was making no money, um, but you had that title. It was a dream. I yeah. mean, you know, it was. It was. It was. I. It was. Yeah. I, I was just so grateful to have that. Position. Right. So, you know, you start moving along through there, and I mean, I think this is when this is also at a time in which, right, like the the fashion world starts to take digital a little bit more seriously. Definitely. You know, because. I remember you know, the very early stages, like I had a blog, you had a blog, everyone had a blog, and you'd go to these shows or these press shows or whatever they were, and they were like, oh, who do you write for? And when you pulled out that like Zoom info business card or whatever <laughs> that you had made, they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So now you're legit. Now you're, yeah. you're GQ. And so Got like the access. Yeah. So what kind of happened from this? Because this is when you really took off. Yeah. Um, Again, it was it was pretty, you know, I, I think I I think the agreement that Sean and I had were was I was going to send him my posts for like a week or something. And then with the hope that after that, he could sign off and be like, you get it. Just go nuts. Yeah. And I think it took a few days and then he was like, OK, cool. You, you can just go for it. And and so I had no one was editing this. Wow. No one was looking at this stuff at all. In fact, I remember in the early days, I used to get notes all the time from the research department because they would be sporadically like fact checking yeah. all this stuff. And it was, again, like, I mean, I was half the time I was writing jokes, you know, yeah. like it was like, it was so, it was so bloggy, yeah. you know, it was not like highly researched pieces. Here, but you, know? you, I mean, <laughs> to your credit too, you also really developed a voice for that. I mean, I think the GQI, instead of like regurgitating press releases, which is right. what a lot of other blogs were doing at that time, right. you became as like the big brother to all of these younger guys who were trying to read GQ of like, psst, psst, like, this is how you should do it. This is, yeah. And so you need humor because at the end of the day, when you think about clothes and how crazy everyone gets about like the, the you know, how they want to look and present themselves, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And I think like for, for you to be able to, to, build and develop that voice is a pretty incredible thing yeah i i i always um 
I had been reading GQ for years, and I always really related to the voice there. Yeah. Um, like the style guy type voice? Yeah, yeah. Like, kind of like an older brother, you know, a little bit of, you know, definitely likes a little bit of fratty bro in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, you know, gets the more sort of, like, the more subtle things about, you know, this whole experience. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I kind of paired that with like what Lawrence was doing because I got that voice as well. Lawrence Schlossman. Yeah. Our mutual friend. Yeah. Lawrence Schlossman, our mutual friend. Exactly. I, I, I really understood his voice as well. And so I think that the voice that I was doing for the, I was, was a combination of those two things. It it wasn't strictly GQ and it wasn't strictly hashtag menswear Lawrence. Yeah. So then you get a few opportunities thrown at you and what, what kind of became, what was next after this? Um, I think the big thing for me when I was working at GQ was I was got to start writing for the magazine. Right. And that I was really psyched about, uh, Will Welch, who you had on the show a few weeks ago, yeah, yeah. um, gave me the opportunity to start to write for the manual section, which is the front of the book. Yeah. Um, and I remember I did, my first piece it was on umbrellas and it was like 250 words but i was so fucking stoked to like have a byline in gq yeah because then you know then i I, like you blow up and i'm I'm seeing you everywhere i mean you're j crew you know you're doing writing you know and i won't fast forward too far ahead but you're doing writing for for harry's yeah you're doing writing basically if you're a menswear company because i think you also wrote for man of the world I did. Yeah. yeah. I how it went for me when I left GQ is after a year and a half of GQ of those, you know, of the Sean Sean days of 8 to 10 posts a day and then maybe scaled back after that, but still I was I was burnt out. Yeah. Um and I wanted to I also was I really felt like I kind of should shift while I had some momentum behind me because right. I felt I felt that I had built a name for myself in that tiny piece of the world that we inhabited but i felt like i had made my name out there and i wanted to you know get paid for it and i wanted to be appreciated in a monetary way for it yeah um i mean you wanted to get compensated a little bit more. i wanted to get compensated so i took this job at j crew which you know quadrupled my salary or whatever yeah and i and i took a job as a as the copywriter for men's uh one of two um and you know, but I, I, it was hard for me to um, work a nine to five desk job after being at GQ because GQ gave me so much freedom. Yeah. Um, I worked from home a lot. I was also mostly out in the field, like at showroom appointments and interviewing designers and all these things. You know, again, because it was because there was so little structure there in those days, I got to do so much stuff that I wouldn't get to do if I worked at GQ.com today. Yeah. I mean, because you also had. I mean, your job was to just get content and My, make content. And so, all, exactly. you know, at the end of the day, at least from other people I know who've, who've had roles similar to yours, um, as long as you're delivering, it doesn't matter if you're on the moon. Like, just get it, get it there. Exactly. And I think, yeah, now more, more days, I think people want to keep, uh, I don't know, keep people a little bit closer to the chest. And, and you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that, yeah, again, that was such a develop, 
that was the gq.com was under in such development stages at that point i right. think because it was min.style.com right? right and and yeah. and also it's it's affiliated with a magazine that is such like an imprint you know and sure and i think that a lot of people i don't think a lot of people on the edit side were even sure like how fast the the dot com was developing like i when i started there i don't even think they looked at it the magazine people. Right. You know, like maybe once in a great while, Jim Nelson would look at the numbers or something. But yeah. I, I don't think that they anyone looking was looking at it. And then, you know, during the course of those couple years, they started to pump a lot more money into it. It became a different animal. And, you know, so. So now you're, you're S.H. So, like, you are, you know, you're writing for everyone. Um, you know, Man of the World... Harry's razors. I mean, and you're, you're like, no, I mean, well, Harry's, I mean, you developed, I mean, and I'll, I'll give it a shout out. Cause it wasn't like, you're like, Hey, buy a razor. It's cool. You were making like good content for them. I think it was like this daily routine thing or what? I yeah. Can, yeah. Can you refresh my, what was the, like the exact title of it? We did it. We did a, like a digital magazine for Harry's called five o'clock. That's what it was. Yeah. And, um, the guys there were super, super into the idea of making like some kind of evergreen content that yeah. that felt authentic and wasn't salesy and tried to sell you razors to your point. So, <laughs> um, so we brought in some really cool people. One of them, a friend of mine, Brian Ferry, started doing a lot of the photography for the for the site, and we did those those uh, those morning routines, which were called the Method. Yeah, and that was really fun. We did a lot of those over those three years, and it kind of allowed me to cross worlds a little bit for them because we were bringing in a lot of fashion people for that. And a lot of like kind of men's lifestyle people. And it kind of allowed me to um, utilize the connections that I'd made over the past two or three years and, and make some stuff that was fun for them. Yeah. Cause I'm sure the Rolodex of, of yours was, was pretty thick at that point. Um, And what I want to get to now uh, is basically like one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to have you on is you wrote an article for GQ. Um, I think it was GQ style or GQ proper. It was GQ proper and yeah. it was, uh, January 2017. It was, oh, yeah. Okay. So it was in January and it was basically about minimalism and, and kind of cleaning out your life. Um, and I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes at this. But this, I mean, I because I had read a lot of your stuff, but I think like I read this and I stopped. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I won't give too much of it away. But the gist of it was that you had felt kind of overwhelmed and bogged down by the amount of stuff you had, air quote stuff of just clothes and things, and you kind of more or less decided to clean everything out. And, and, you know, and you kind of listed what everything was worth. You know, you, you mentioned Grailed, um, you know, that you were selling stuff on Grailed and you kind of like edited yourself down to just the bare essentials. Um, I mean, can you just like kind of go over it real quick for people who, I mean, haven't read it yet? I mean, sure. Um, I think, I mean, we talked about when I first moved to New York and when I was accumulating all these suits and spending lots of money on clothes. Yeah. And then sort of the next phase of that and was working at GQ where when you work at a magazine, you get lots of free shit sent to you. Yeah. 
So basically, I had been carting around now for years all these kind of skeletons of my past. You know, I had all these Phineas Cole suits from Paul Stewart. Right. Sitting on a bar next to all these free sh- jackets and shit that I'd gotten from GQ. And it was just out of hand. I mean, I had too much stuff. I would, when I moved from the Upper East Side in 2011 down to the East Village, I had so many boxes of clothes it, it and, and like no furniture. And it was just kind of like this you know, eye-opening moment for me. And, and, but, I, but I didn't, you know, I continued to just accumulate stuff. And then, you know, the article opens with this random hookup that I had. But, but this girl wakes up in my apartment and, you know, she's kind of like, you have so many clothes. <laughs> like a comical amount of clothes. Like it looked like a showroom in my apartment. Right. Um, just garment racks. Of- it was, yeah, it was, and it was disgusting. It was like, you know, I never cleaned it either. So it was like dusty piles of shoes and like, you know, just like this giant wardrobe thing I had gotten that was just filled with stacks of dress shirts in the plastic that they come back in from the dry cleaner. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it was wire ridiculous. hangers. Yeah. And my, my girlfriend now, she, she makes fun of how my coat hanger looked at that place because she was like the coats, there were so many coats that it was, that it was like, they didn't even hang anymore. They were like perpendicular. To- <laughs> oh my God. It was ridiculous. I have a photo of that somewhere. <laughs> so you basically decided to like, you know, downsize your entire life. Yeah. I mean, for me, I I think it's important to say that, that there were a lot of, I think when you're writing for a magazine like GQ that, you know, has to kind of have, especially in that sort of middle section, there's, there needs to be some service involved in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, There needs to be some takeaway. Sure. Um, but that piece was so much less about minimalism for me than it was about, the element of like, I felt like I really needed to clean out these things from my life in order to audit what was there and to begin like, to begin, you know, digging further into like my story. Right. If that makes sense. No, I mean, it does. Cause I think, you know, what, I mean, look, I've read lots of articles where people are like, Oh, you know, just have this or get rid of this, but, or, or get rid of this. But what, struck me the most about your article was how vulnerable you got. Yeah. I mean, I really was a, I I made the connection, um, you know, between sort of like how these stories had kind of run parallel, how I had been like a very wounded person and kind of like filling up my life with a ton of shit that I didn't need. Mm -hmm. And then as I got less wounded, I looked around and I was like, man, there's way too much shit here. Yeah. I need to like get rid of some of this stuff so I can see what's here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and I did, I, you know, I, I think I credit, I think I credit, um, my girlfriend's father with kind of introducing me to, you know, the type of clothes that, that we were into at that time, which were like, you know, the beautiful suits and like that gave way to sort of like this Italian thing or whatever you know yeah um but but i was into the idea i think of i was into the idea of you know having this lifestyle full of beautiful things as a way to cover up 
Um, the skeletons in your closet. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, because yeah. as I said before, when I was walking around in these suits, I I didn't feel, I didn't feel uh, deserving. Um, it was always kind of a skin that I was that I was kind of wearing, and and even when I worked at GQ, I always had a real problem. And I always felt really fraudulent when, like, I'd do, like, an interview or something or someone would be like, oh, you're the style guy. So you you know how to, like, like how do I dress this way? I'm like, I don't, like, I don't have that chip. Like, some people have that chip where, like, they really know how to dress themselves well and they know how to coordinate col- colors and, and cuts of things and stuff. I have never had that. I just had so m- many clothes. Right. Like I, you know, I just like I got my experience through fucking buying clothes <laughs> and then like being given clothes and just having so much exposure to clothes that that like it sort of just happened by like that's why I that's why I'm writing about clothes because because of those things. Yeah. It's not because like I had like a unique fashion sense. I mean, I'm like I'm not that interesting of a dresser. That's not true. Well, th- thank you, but I I you know I mean, I think with that stuff, and especially like with that article, I mean, you talk about, you know, confronting the elephant in the room and that like what you were saying now is like, look, I had all of this stuff, but I was buying these things more or less to, to cover up what I was truly dealing with. And I mean, you've, I was surprised because you mentioned it like five or six times right out of the gate in the, as we started doing this pod of that, like you had lost your father. right, and. You know, some people physically lose their father. Mm-hmm. Some people, their fa- they lose their father, but he's still alive. You know, uh, but I think like losing someone, and it's more of like, how does the human soul grieve? And I think that's one of the like, one of the things that there can be a gajillion books about how we think and religion and you know in theology and like i've i've buried myself into tons of theology books trying to figure out what the fuck is going on with my life mm. and i think grieving and learning how your mind processes this stuff is something that no one can ever truly teach you mm-hmm I think it's something that you have to learn and go through on your own. And I'm not trying to speak for you. I'm more just like, you know, when you said that, it messed with me. And I think that, like, you know, when you wrote that article, that was when I was like, shit, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing either, you know? And, and it made me want to evaluate my life. And in terms of being a writer and being of someone who can communicate their own personal story, because I sent you an email and I was like, dude, yeah, this was intense. <laughs> and, and you were like, yeah, other people have said the same thing. And I'm like, well, no shit. <laughs> I was like, of course people are going to reach out to you over this. This is, a, I mean, this was, it was, not only was it just a beautiful piece of journalism, but it was also just like, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm more human than, than what you think. And I don't think people thought you were some disconnected person in the slightest, but it's just that when you reveal yourself to other people intimacy you know starts to form i mean it's just sure. how you know with relationships if i tell you my dark secrets you feel a little bit more connected to me because you know stuff that other people don't completely right and i mean i, I think like 
the thing that you talked about was you talked about counseling and you talked about like kind of learning how to, to speak to loss and grief. I mean, how, I mean, I just want to, you don't even have to share too much if you want. We can, but like, how are you doing with that? Good. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Like we've spoken about that, but I, I you're right. It, when you're vulnerable, people tend to come to your level. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's true. Um, I am, I'm doing well. Um, I've been, it's taken me a lot of, it's taken me a lot of years, you know, like it took me a lot of years to be able to get to the place where I could make that connection. And I think that you touched on something that I think is, is really important in general is human beings when they feel pain or any feeling really, but pain, especially pain and fear that you want to soothe that. Yeah. And like, you want to cover it up, you know, like that's, that's like kind of what our culture teaches. Yeah. Um, cover it up, buck up type of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think what I realized, you know, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble. Of course, you know, it creates some good stories, I guess, but I could have saved myself a lot of trouble if, you know, I was in a place to be able to just grieve Yeah. in the first place. And instead I just got kind of this wild roundabout trip. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I am a huge proponent of speaking, um, openly and honestly and i'm a huge proponent of therapy and all the therapies that i've tried i've tried a lot um one of the things that my mom has really given me is when i was a kid i i didn't really understand my mom but from about the time she was in her early 30s um you know for the next 20 years um probably she was you know going through this kind of process with her own life um, and you know, she was a counselor and the man who she, um, married after my father was an acupuncturist and they both had a very holistic manner of looking at the world mm. and were very, you know, had between them have years and years of therapy between them. Um, and are living this lifestyle that, that at the time I didn't understand, but now I really respect, um, you know, they, I I don't think that by, by standards of, you know, our society, I don't think that they would be perceived as successful people, which is really sad because they don't have a lot of money, but they have like an incredible richness of spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really what I had to figure out. Um, you know, as I said, because my dad and my dad was really into things and my mom was really into, you know, my dad was kind of, he relied on kind of these external things to regulate his happiness. And ultimately that's why he killed himself because he lost those things and he didn't know how to go on. Mm -hmm. And my mom started doing, started taking a more internal approach and sorting out, you know, the things that were in there. Um, and that has ultimately been the key to her happiness. And she's one of the happiest people I know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had these weird kind of, you know, polar opposites for parents. So 
And for a while, I was on my dad's track, you know, yeah, if we're stuff. talking about the article. Yeah, the stuff track. And I think, you know, in the last few years of my life, it's been a major, major change for me to start to see that my mom was really on to something the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, but, uh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, but, but also the other thing about something like that article is I got some reactions from people that sort of felt that that was like me denouncing stuff, but it's not like I, I love stuff, <laughs> you know, like, like I really love clothes. Right. But it's when it veers into unmanageable behavior like that, that it becomes a problem. Sure. If I can, I mean, I, I was joking with my girlfriend the other day because I, I hadn't been into a department store in like three years. Right. And I went into Barney's Yeah. <laughs> and I had to leave immediately. Like, it's like, it, it was, it, the temptation is, is, is too great. Yeah. I, I can't handle it. Well, and sadly, very few other people go to department stores these days. No, no, <laughs> I know, I know. But you know what I mean? I just, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. could have been anywhere. It could have been a boutique. I don't, I right. don't go shopping for a reason. Yeah. I don't, I can't, I can't handle it. I want the, I want the shit. Yeah. You know? You get that itchy trigger finger. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, anyway. No, I mean, I, that's, it's funny because I'm. You know, I'm the same way in that I needed these things to identify myself through. Um, you know, I like a perfect example, you know, and I guess I'll get a little vulnerable too here is the fact that like I've loved watches. Yeah. I loved watches. I cared so much about watches and I was like, I'm going to own a Rolex and I'm going to own a Rolex because F you like I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I've never felt smart enough. I've never felt good enough to be in the room but i'm like if i have a rolex and i'm wearing my dior jeans and i'm have this like <laughs> i'm a somebody like you know who i am and then i was like well shit i can't get a rolex if i don't know everything about it so then all of a sudden i like make myself i mean thank god to like ben climber and other people i like i'm like i'm gonna be this watch guy i'm gonna learn all this about watches so at least if someone says oh you have this watch i can be like well yeah it's but i'm not just like a rich guy i'm <laughs> right, you know right. i actually know about this you know it's an in-house movement you know, I don't know, you know, and I, for myself, would continue to find as many ways as possible to justify my behavior, you know, and absolutely, I'm, you know, I'm with someone now, but the person I was with before, I remember she uh, called that stuff out to me. She was like, you, you just care about like this and this. and. You know, I mean, our relationship failed for shit, a multitude of reasons, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's true that like some of these things that like people say, like it, it rings true and it, and unfortunately you have to kind of get to the end of yourself to get there. For sure. And I think, you know, from the, the best thing about your article to get right back to that, that made me feel really good and why I also felt comfortable trying to get you to talk about this on the podcast and stuff too is that you didn't end it with like p.s the world's fucked it was like there was a also like a really strong message of hope throughout it and it was the fact that this is where i was this is what i dealt with and this is where i am now and it wasn't just optimism optimism that was in it it was that 
like you knew things were going to be better and that you knew things you know and what you'd been dealing with was was good for you and it was that you were growing up yeah i think i think certain things you go through like that and to your point i think a lot of it is age yeah um but i think there certain things that you go through um to go back would it would never be the same because it would be ruined because now if i went back and tried to like escape my life by like buying tons of clothes i the guilt I, I I couldn't do it. It's ruined. Well, you also and now you have people to hold you accountable for that. Exactly, right? and you you build an infrastructure in yeah. your life where people would say, like, you know, are you, we self medicating here, yeah, Mr. Hotchkiss? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's where and that's where the accountability comes in. You're you're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. You build that life so that it doesn't allow for those slippages anymore. But but I think even internally, there are certain things that you you know I I could never go back and and I don't think I could really go back and do a lot of the things that I used to do to self-medicate in the same way it just wouldn't be effective there there used to be there used to be joy at the time those things were happening and then and then obviously that kind of turned into shame once you realize what's happening but but there there was joy at one point and that joy would never exist now yeah you i mean know, just short-term from, happiness yeah exactly the instant gratification it's it's just it's Right. So what, I mean, now that your life appears to be on a better track and that you've, you know, you're figuring out more whom you are um, as an adult. And I think like, I mean, one thing that you did mention is you were like, oh, it's part of just like growing up. There's a lot of people I know who are far, much more older than me, but I would not say have had the ability to go through this stuff that you've had to figure out who they are. You know, a lot of these people still cling to whether it's an object or an emotion or a feeling or a lifestyle that is what, that they're seeking to identify themselves with other than just saying like, no, this is really who I truly am, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think like for myself, you know, I mean, I'm, my dad was a pastor, you know, he's retired now. My mom is like some form of a pastor and trying to figure out who I am, not as Russ Kirkland and Patty Kirkland's son, but as Jeremy <laughs> Kirkland, this guy who lives in New York and, and has no idea what he's doing and being okay with that. Um, what would you say are the things that you are doing now that's kind of keeping you more grounded? I mean, you talked that you were meditating, that you were exercising, that you were, you know, these other forms of like natural dopamines. But like, what are the, what are the other things that you're that you're working on. I mean, you, you had said that you were writing too again. Yeah. I mean, at this point I'm really interested in writing about basically everything that we've spoken about. Yeah. Um, and continuing to kind of dig on my own story. Yeah. Um, to me, I find that really cathartic. I think that, that that's one great thing about writing is there's no there's no it's if you're gonna write personal literature or essays or anything if you're gonna write if you're gonna write about yourself there's no you can it's not gonna be interesting unless you dig for something so it's cathartic in in itself right um and i yeah I, i mean i'm one of the things that's really getting me 
a lot more information about all this stuff as we have this conversation is I've continued to write about it and I will continue to. Yeah. So, you know, this is this memoir or anything like how, I mean, how do you hold yourself accountable to this? Are you like setting goals or is this just like, look, I write as it comes or is, I mean, no, and this is, I don't know the wizard behind the curtain. So, I mean, feel free to blow my mind or not. Like I, I don't, you know, I don't know. No, I mean, it's, it's my goal. Other than that, I can't, you know, it's, it's what I'm focused on. Um, and I feel, I think that the article in GQ a few months ago was a good indication to me that I'm on the right track as far as digging for this stuff, because I was really touched with the responses I got from it. Yeah. Um, so I think that that was a much needed after spending most of last year writing a lot and not getting a lot of kind of validation that this was maybe the way. Right. I think that was a, a hell of a way to cap off the year because it gave me that, which I needed at that time to feel like I was moving towards the place I, I should be. Right. Man, this was good. Yeah, it was great. I mean, this was intense. I feel, uh, I feel like I just left a sweat lodge. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty intense. Like, what are we going to do after this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, because it's I don't funny. Know if I could see you immediately after no, <laughs> I, I was sitting here and I was thinking, I was like, what the, what the hell do I even mention now? And, you know, we're still recording and I'll leave this on, but like, I just want to thank you. And I and I wanted to definitely encourage you of like the stuff that you're doing because it, it's it's helping me. Thanks. I guarantee you, it's helping tons of other people. And I think that at least for our generation, and that you know we're millennials or whatever the hell that we are, we're constantly trying to seek to figure out how do we identify ourselves? Are we our blog? Are we our Twitter? Are we our Instagram? I mean, there's so many freaking things that we can use to identify themselves <laughs> that i think that it's very easy to get lost and it's very easy to figure out who we are and and what and what do we truly want to be represented by and so i just want to thank you again for providing just even a fraction of clarity that whatever you think it was, i mean it was help very helpful to me and i just want to encourage you and tell you that like i think what you're doing is awesome Thank you. And so I'm very glad you came on. Thank you so much for telling more about your life. And this was really good. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you again for yeah. having me. Thanks. I was looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Bye. Thanks. All right. That is it for this week's episode. Huge thanks again for Sean for coming on and talking with me. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Blamo. If you like what you heard, leave a review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Thanks. We'll see you next week.